Uh, it's great to be here, isn't it? What a beautiful day. What a beautiful place to go to school. I'm thrilled. I guess we appreciate this environment more now because we live here. It takes me a whole five minutes to drive to work as opposed to the 30 I used to drive. And it's super. This is a great place. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're freezing. And by noon, you begin to thaw out. We're going to continue in our series this morning on the master's morality, our quest for holy living. And our topic this morning and for the next two messages after this is going to be on sexuality. I'm going to speak to you this morning about sex, what the Bible has to say about sex. And then on Friday, Dewey is going to speak to you about the consequences of sexual immorality. And then I think on Monday, we will bring a message to you on dealing with sexual temptation. I told this to one of our students. They said, what in the world are you talking about this stuff for? This doesn't even affect me. I took their pulse and <laughs> I guess they were alive. I don't know. Facts and figures on teenage sex. The average age in America for first time sexual intercourse 15 to 17 years of age. Approximately 30% of the teens between the ages of 13 and 15 have had sexual intercourse. 30% of the people in America who fall between the ages of 13 and 15 have had sexual intercourse. Approximately 60% of the teens between the ages of 16 and 18. Now, this is 60%, over half have had sexual intercourse. 74% of the teens surveyed say they would live with someone before or instead of marriage. This is the mindset of America today. The survey also indicated that almost all teenagers want more information about intercourse, birth control, and venereal disease in that order. Birth uh, Intercourse birth control, and venereal disease. These facts, along with what you already know to be true about yourself and others that you know, confirm that teenagers in America today are very active in sex. And those who are not active deeply desire to know more about it. Why? Why? If we were to survey the same teenagers on their fishing habits their piano playing habits, their skydiving habits, and their nose picking habits, do you think that 60% of them would say, yes, I've done it? And all of them say, I'm desiring to know more about it? Why is that? What is it about sex? Well, I think there's at least three things. First of all, we're all born with sex drives. God-given sex drives. My dog comes to mind when I think about a sex drive. I had this dog named Baron. He's a short-haired German pointer crossed with a lab, kind of a mutt, you know. But he's a good dog. And he, he obeyed me. I would say no, and he wouldn't do it. In fact, I can remember times when he would be upset because another dog would come onto our property and he would begin to take out and he was going to rip their head off. And I'd say, Baron, no! And he'd stop and come back. That's control. I was his master until a female dog in heat came by our house. 
And then it didn't matter what I said or what I threatened. My dog was out of control. Absolutely, he broke his chains. We locked him up in our house. We had this back room and we locked him up in there and he about ripped the door off the hinges trying to get out. All because there was a dog in the neighborhood emitting the fact, the odor that she was in heat. Sex drive. You've been given one. It's from God. That's one of the reasons we're so interested about sex. Another one is that we have emotional and security needs. We're created in a dependent work. We are dependent. We have emotional and security needs. And if those needs are not properly met, we can find a temporary meeting of those needs in illicit sex. Doesn't make it right, doesn't justify it, but it helps you understand it. A gal came into my office as I was a POD at Grace Community Church, an older lady, maybe 30, 35 years old. She's broken, tears, distraught, didn't know why she was alive, didn't want to be alive. She related to me the life story. One lover after another, almost like Gomer. Just one thing right after another. Until she finally came into the office because what she wanted to give away, nobody wanted anymore. She was too old. Sex wasn't going to cut it for her anymore. Her product lost its appeal in the marketplace. And as we began to probe into her past, we learned that her mother and her father hated her. They wished she'd never been born. They never loved her. They never cared for her. She never had any real, true, genuine, significant friendship. She had no relationship with Jesus Christ. The lady had a big void when it came to her emotional and security needs. And as you can already tell, she went around her life selling her body in an effort to get those needs met. She wasn't desiring to do all those things for the sake of sex. What she wanted was that temporary moment of feeling, I'm loved. My emotional needs are being met, at least for this moment. A lot of people on this campus who do not have their emotional and their security needs met in Jesus Christ. And that, by the way, is the place to have all of your needs met. And I see you. I mean, I, you know, it's obvious. I've seen them on other campuses. And we tend to lock ourselves into relationships. Not because there's anything of real value in that relationship other than it meets my emotional security needs. And I can't stand alone. Because I'm just too empty. But if I can get somebody to love me and hold my hand and do things with me, and there's nothing wrong with loving and holding hands and doing things, right? But if the whole issue behind that is I'm empty emotionally and security-wise, and I'm just latching on to you as a leech would, and I'm sucking out of you what I think I need, that's not a good basis for a relationship. And typically it's those relationships that end up in sexual trouble. So we've got a sex drive. Secondly, we have emotional and security needs. And then thirdly, we happen to live in a sex-crazed society. Right? The people who control the music industry, the people who control the advertisements, the people who control TV programming, the people who control the media, the movies, are portraying and flaunting and capitalizing and making millions of dollars Billions of dollars on well-presented sex. Never in the history of the world has sex been so graphically, so professionally portrayed with such excellence as it is today. We live in a sex-crazed society. We are living in the aftermath, the rubbish, the fallout of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. I was just old enough 
to watch a little bit of it. Girls used to wear bras. I was about 10 years old. All of a sudden, nobody wears bras anymore. And then they start wearing real skimpy t-shirts, so it's real obvious they're not wearing bras. You know, it wasn't that way always in this country. Open nudity, legalized abortion, unmarried couples openly, blatantly living with each other. That's a phenomena that is new in this country, new to about the last 10, 15 years. My uncle, we call him Uncle Bob, he had the privilege of, I, mean, I don't know if it was a privilege, he had the responsibility as a member of the U.S. Navy to be among the first 100 men to set foot in Hiroshima after the dropping of the atom bomb. And as he relates to me the account of the aftermath and the rubbish, it's shocking. He tells of one Japanese man who was riding in a streetcar, kind of standing up there holding on to this thing. And apparently the bomb hit and it just French fried him right there. There he was, still standing there, days later when the Navy moved in. I mean, the rubble and the consequence and the ruin was everywhere. You and I live in the consequence and the rubble and the ruin of the 1960 sexual revolution. And you weren't even there to participate in it to stand up against it. But we know a moral looseness today that the country has never known. Free love was their slogan. If you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with. Translated into Christian language, if you're not with the one you have illicit sexual intercourse with, have sexual illicit intercourse with the one you're with. The issue is not the person. The issue is not a relationship. The issue is not love. The issue is sex. If you're not with the one you usually have sex with, then have sex with the one you're usually with. Free love. As a children's pastor at Grace Community Church, I had kids cry in my office. Because when they went away to stay with their split up parents, the ones they stayed with were Christians. And sometimes they'd go away to their, their other par par parent. And there was an unbeliever. And they'd have to stay in that home. And that unbelieving parent would bring home their lover for the night. And here you've got this fragile little mind inside a home. And the parent brings home to expose to his child and they shut the door and the kid knows full well what's going on back there. This is a type of morality that, that is horrible. It's horrifying. And yet because we've been raised in it, we tend to accept it. Sex is constantly being examined clinically on the radio, TV, books, magazines. I mean, it's just everywhere. Dr. Joyce Brothers, I was listening to KNX. It's a pretty good station, you know, news. Dr. Joyce Brothers gets on and she begins to analyze the sexual drives of the 1980 woman. Well, thanks, but no thanks, honey. I don't need that. You know, spare me, will you? The world is crazy about sex. So crazed about sex that the average teenager in America is either involved in it or tremendously desires to know more about it. And those who are not involved in it aren't for three reasons. They don't know enough about it. They're afraid. And so we promote sex education in our schools so that we can educate them so that they know how to do it. They don't get involved because they're afraid of their reputation. What will people say? And they don't get involved because they're fearful of pregnancy. But never fear. We legalize abortion. The average Christian kid... The average Christian student doesn't even know how to feel about sex. He feels guilty about his sex drive. He knows it's wrong. Sex, illicit sex is wrong, but doesn't, isn't sure why. 
His parents don't want to talk about it. It's a hush-hush. Understands few things about intercourse. But has no idea of the whole picture. It's a tragic thing. On the one hand, we just promote it like crazy. And yet the Christian community is in a blur. What does the Bible have to say about sex? I don't know. Let's give it a stab. Let's look at three things this morning. This will just be a beginning. And then Dewey, and then we'll have another message on Monday. We're going to look at three things. Dispelling the myth about sex. Dispelling the myth. What's the myth? Here it is. God hates sex. You ever feel that way? Oh, God hates sex. He, he just tolerates it. In fact, he wishes he never created it. God's down on sex. If God had it to do over again, he wouldn't do it this way. He probably never would have created sex. That's a myth. Christians think they're spiritual because they're down on sex. I remember taking my daughter to Marineland. Just to exemplify this. I mean, I'm subject to this too. And you know, my daughter, we got all we got, all we got my family's girls. No boys, see. So every time a diaper's changed in my family, it's just another girl looking at another girl. Well, here we are outside of Marineland with another couple, and they happen to have a little boy, and he, you know, messes up his pants. And so right there in the parking lot, as mothers do, they change the diapers. See, and this little boy, and so the mother just takes off his diapers. And my little three-and-a-half-year-old daughter is getting the shock of her life. She looks at this kid. I wrote this down. She looks up at me, and she says, Daddy, why is he different? Now I'm on the spot, man. I got parents listening to that question, looking at me, what am I going to say? I'm stumbling all over myself, man. There's a pause of about five minutes. My daughter's just looking, saying, Dad, how come he's so different? Finally, I come to my senses. I say, well, honey, that's the way God lets him go to the bathroom. I mean, come on, give me a break. You see, I'm so intimidated by this stuff. That's the way God made him, honey. Isn't it exciting? It's different than you. He's a boy. You're a girl. I don't know. She could have handled much more than that's the way he goes to the bathroom. But we think God hates sex. We think God just tolerates sex. We think we're, that God shuns it. He's embarrassed about it. He wants to change the subject every time it's brought up. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 for a second, will you? Most amazing thing. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him what? Male and female. That's right. God did that. God created men and their reproductive organs just how he wanted them. God created this incredible thing called a woman just the way she is. In fact, she was better before the fall. Nothing personal, women. We were better too, then. And look what it says here in verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. He was excited about it. He said, good job, God. That's exactly how I wanted it to come out. No mistake there. And may I suggest to you, when he created them male and female, he put in them that sex drive you know now, 
He designed the process of physical intercourse. He knew all about the sensitive parts of our folks. God created it that way. God's not down on facts. Look at Adam's reaction to this whole process. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 21. We kind of have a more detailed account of creation in chapter 2. So, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. This is after he realized the man was alone, you know. And he slept, and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, here is the first man seeing for the first time in the history of the world a woman. May I remind you, they were naked. And what does this man say? And the man said, this is now bone of my bones. Now, as we studied this in seminary, my Hebrew professor instructs me that the words really mean bone of my bones. It's an explanation. He wakes up. There she is and says, wow, bone of my bones. That came from me? He was excited about it. It was a positive thing. It was just the way God wanted it. Turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this whole thing. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the whole deal. That's the whole point. A man leaves his household, a woman leaves her household, and they become one. One flesh, physically, spiritually, financially, in every dimension of their life, they become one. God's design for marriage. And I would like to put a plug in at this point as one who is married. It's wonderful. It's tremendous. So the myth is dispelled. God does not fear sex. He does not tolerate sex. He's not ashamed of sex. He created it. He created it. But sex was a lot like a river. You keep it in the banks, it's intended course, and it brings life, it brings beauty, it supplies the plants with their food, provides a place for the fowl to come and land, trees, gorgeous place, a river, until there's a flood. I remember as a boy, we lived up in uh, San Inez, just above Santa Barbara. In 1969, they had a horrible flood. Lake Kachuma is just above the San Inez River. And it just kept raining and raining and raining and raining and raining and raining. Until finally the dam broke. And it broke at 4 a.m., so nobody even had a chance to help anybody. And this huge wall of water came crushing down the middle of our valley. And the poor folks who had built ranches had, had these, these racehorses, racehorse ranches, right on the river, just off the riverbed. And by the time we woke up in the morning and drove to the highway where we could see it, there were million-dollar horses floating down the water. 
Helicopters were everywhere trying to get them off these little islands that they'd been able to land on. Houses, cars, cattle. It was just a massive ruin of destruction. That's like sex. You keep sex where it's intended. In marriage, it's beautiful. It brings life. You let that sex step outside of marriage, and it brings absolute destruction. Absolute destruction. So point two, defending the marriage. The marriage is the only place for sex. It's the only place for sex. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, will you? Let's find out what God has to say about that. Marriage is the only place for sex. God makes a pretty strong command here. Look at verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Look up at verse 2. For you know what the commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word commandments there is a military term and it denotes the orders received from a higher power to a middle management officer to be given to subordinates. And that's the process. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ commanded Paul in a military sense to command you and I what the will of God is. You know, people run around in a fog wishing they knew what God's will for their life was. Well, just open first this for a point one and see that the will of God in verse three is your sanctification. What are we talking about? Sanctification is that process of becoming holy, becoming holy. And God says abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word abstain is in the middle voice. An active voice means I killed you. A passive voice means I got killed. A middle voice means I killed myself. Right? It's a middle ver- middle voiced verb. Hold yourself back. Abstain from sexual immorality. Hold yourself back. It's your responsibility. It's not your girlfriend's responsibility. It's not your boyfriend's responsibility. It's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility. God's will is that you hold yourself back from sexual immorality. What is this stuff called sexual immorality? Pornea in the Greek. It's sexual sin. Illicit sexual activity. And the question that always comes up on this verse is now what does that mean? Does that mean kissing? Is that sexual immorality? Well, how about light petting? Is, is that sexual immorality? Well, how about heavy petting? You know, just so long as we don't go all the way. What does it mean here? Well, I'm not sure, but I'll give you what I think. Proverbs 5. Don't turn there. Let me just read it. Proverbs 5 says this. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Now, the man who would speak wisdom and instruction to the young man says that the breast is for the husband to enjoy at all times. Verse 20 of the same chapter. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? Now we're into the problem of sex. Bad sex. And embrace the bosom of a foreigner. I 
don't know exactly what sexual illicit activity, where it stops and where it begins, but I got an idea that the bosom is reserved for marriage. Here's another thing I think. I understand the sexual drive to be progressive. It was made that way. You know how that starts. You know, you, you bump up against her and then you hold her hand and then you kiss her and all of a sudden this whole thing starts going and it's got a culmination point called intercourse. Right? That's the way God made it. It's a progressive. It's designed to progress. It's wonderful that way inside of marriage. It's a tremendous momentum that builds. Now, as we looked at the mind and we understood that God had a higher level of accountability, our minds are the point of accountability. Look on a woman less for her. You've committed adultery with her already in your heart. A couple gets together and they get started in this dynamic of the sexual drive and it's desiring to culminate and the body's longing for culmination and the mind is thinking about culmination. That's sexual immorality. So I don't know how much you can do by way of light petting or heavy petting, but I know I think pretty strongly the Bible holds the breasts and if that much, everything else for marriage. And then we also know that God is not just concerned what I do, it's what I'm thinking and if we understand the sexual drive to be progressive and I get into this thing at a very, very light petting stage and even kissing. And all of a sudden I feel my entire being calling out for the culmination of that. I don't know. And then thirdly, I'd suggest you go back through the questions that <clears throat> Dr. MacArthur gave us in the last two days. I'm not classifying sexual immorality as a gray area, but I'll tell you the truth. I don't know. If I could make a strong biblical statement that, you, that kissing is sexual immorality. So there may be, a, there may be a, a distinction, a line you'll have to draw. And they'll be different for some and different for others. But maybe as you become involved in that, is it spiritual profitable? Does it build me up? Does it slow me down in the race, etc., etc.? Think through, am I in bondage to it? I remember as a, as, when I was dating my wife Heidi, um, we had a remarkably... Praise God, pure relationship, remarkably pure. And um, though there would be times later on, as we began even closer to marriage, where the kissing would become so intense, and it was just, you know, you know how kissing can get, that all of a sudden I, I had to put us on a no kissing policy for like a month. She hated those. But I, I would come to the realization, I'd say, Heidi, this is stupid, man. In my heart, I'm, this, isn't, this isn't right. I'm too normal to be able to do this stuff and not be in trouble mentally. And, I, you know, I'd say, honey, we can't kiss for a month. And we wouldn't. Just to back off. Just to be sure we weren't in bondage. And, you know, our relationships always got better at that point without all that physical stuff. All right, so that's the command. The will of God for your life. Abstain. Hold yourself back from sexual immorality. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. What are we saying here? The person who can hold himself back from sexual immorality is what we classify as under control. This person's under control. The person who cannot is out of control. See the word know-how there? That you know-how? It's kind of like know-how. He's got a lot of know-how. 
He's got a lot of skill. He's got the know-how to pull that off. The Bible says, get the know-how to pull it off in the area of the sexual. Learn how to keep yourself back from sexual immorality. Gain the skill necessary to accomplish the designated goal of sexual purity. The Bible says, know how to possess it, saying, get the skill to attain the goal. And see, it's in contrast to this other thing called lustful passion in verse 5. We're going to contrast knowing how to possess, and that's put in sharp contrast to lustful passion. And as simply as I can say it, lustful passion is a condition where the senses have been converted to the ruling principle. Lustful passion, who's at the control center of your life? Lust. My senses, my glands. Huh, that's who runs my life, my glands. That's the person who's guilty of lustful passion. You know, this stands in such sharp contrast to the world. I think of James Bond movies that I used to watch, used to watch, as an unbeliever. And, uh, you know, he's always presented as the Mr. Cool Dude, right? I mean, he's always on top of everything. He's always in charge. He's always, he's everybody everybody wants to be. See? And a part of that is being able to grab these incredibly gorgeous women and slip off into the bedroom with them at his whim. Well, see, that's what the world says is cool. What does the Bible say? James Bond is out of control and he's being run by his glands. Now, that's renewing your mind. That's seeing things like God sees things. He's not cool. He's out of control. His passions, his glands, it's horrible. Call it what it is. Hmm? Yeah. When you see some guy flaunting his sexual prowess, say, hey, man, you're out of control. You know something? You're base. You're working on your glands. I don't, I don't look up to that. I don't think that's good. Now, there's some heavy consequences to action like this. Look at verse 6. It says, don't do that stuff. Because if you do, you'll transgress and defraud your brother. Transgress means to go beyond, to exceed the proper limits, to get the better of. That's a good word, huh? That's a good phrase. That calls it like it is. Get the better of. You transgress. You get the better of the other person. Defraud is to get more than your due. It's to selfishly attempt to gain more at all costs and with all means, disregarding the other's rights. Amazes me, you know. These couples, they get in the fit of passion, and they're kissing, and they're on the road, you know, and they're going to get in trouble. Maybe for them, kissing is already in trouble. And, uh, And the guy says, oh, I love you. Right? And she says, oh, I love you too. Oh, this is so love, man. Love's everywhere. We're doing this because we love each other. No, you're doing this because you're out of control. And you're defrauding your brother. And you're transgressing. That's what you're doing. Call it what it is. Oh, I just I just want to transgress you. I just want to defraud you tonight. That's right. That's it. Call a spade a spade. Some guy call, tells you he loves you. And then wants to take your blouse off. You say, hey, pack out of here. You're transgressing me. You're defrauding me. You're selfish. Don't tell me you love me. Love is acting in my best interest, right? Don't touch me. We're done. Call it what it is. 
When you get started in a relationship with somebody, I see so many relationships that get all pumped up because they got too involved physically too soon. And that's just kind of the energy that just keeps this thing going for months. And finally they look at each other and they go, I don't love you. There's nothing about you I even like. I don't know what I'm doing with you in the first place. Man, don't let your relationship even begin with a hint of the sexual. Keep it pure. So what the world exalts as the allure and the wonder of premarital sex, the Bible says that it's men and women out of control, transgressing and defrauding each other. The consequence? Watch out. <clears throat> the Lord is the Avenger. Interesting word there, the Avenger. It's not a TV show. It's one who carries out that which is right. One who carries out. The Lord will carry out what is right in response to your defrauding and your transgressing. It has the picture of one of, of the office who comes as a legal representative, a legal representative. The Lord Jesus says, you transgress a brother and I'm going to come back to you as their legal representative. You want to answer the door when he comes? Neither do I. I don't want to be anywhere near it. The Lord comes as the legal representative of the one you have transgressed and defrauded. And he comes in all different shapes and sizes. He breaks your bones. He ruins your friendships. He wipes out your ability to study. He gets you in car accidents. All an expression of his love. Hebrews 12. He's amazing. You know, my daughter and I, we like to go on dates. <clears throat> Randy and I. I take Nikki too, but she's a little young yet. We go on these dates, you know, and one of our favorite places to go for a date is the donut shop because she loves donuts. And, and we go to the donut shop and we were sitting there one morning eating donuts at this ungodly hour. She gets up real early. Anyway, we're sitting there eating these donuts and we look up on the wall and she sees all this poster with all these little faces on it. She says, Daddy, who are those people? Who are those kids? And it's one of those, you know, help return the kidnapped posters with all the kidnapped kids. And I call, I go, honey, those are kids who have been taken by bad people. And they may never see their mommy and daddy again. We need to pray for them. So we pray for those kids. And my mind began to drift, you know. What if my daughter's picture was on that poster? And I don't know if it's right for me to think this way, but I'll tell you something. Somebody steals my daughter and uses her like most of these young kids are being used for sexual activity. I get a hold of that guy. I'm going to rip him limb from limb. Right on the spot. I don't care how big he is. I don't care if he's a judo expert. I'm going to clean his clock. You don't toy with my daughter. Now that's little old me. You sexually transgress or defraud one of the children of God. And think about that, will you? Think about that. Look at verse 7. There's a contradiction here. A blatant contradiction. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but he has called us for sanctification. Listen, Christian, you got called by the living God by name. He knew you before he created the world by name. 
He entered into you with a love relationship before he created the world. And in space and time, he has effectively called you into his kingdom, not for the purpose of impurity. Not for the purpose of filthiness, not so that you can defraud or transgress your brother, but for the purpose of making you holy. It doesn't make sense. It goes against everything God wants for me. It goes against the very definition of his salvation. I've been called by God for the purpose of holiness, not impurity. Marriage is the only place for sex. And I know it's hard. I've been there. I've been there. If you're struggling mentally, if you're struggling actually physically, Seek the help you need. Seek the help you need. Get the river back in bounds. Let it be beautiful. Wait for that thing. Hold on. Dispelling the myth, <clears throat> defending the marriage, and lastly, developing a moral mouth. Developing a moral mouth. You know, sensuous speech is kind of in. <clears throat> we like to talk immorally. We like to use words and phrases. We like to tell dirty jokes. We like to tell tales of previous experiences. It's kind of the, the vogue thing, you know. We who are liberated. We who are mature. We who can handle it. We mature Christians sometimes jest, you know, about these things. The innuendos. The unspoken words. The glances. The looks that communicate very graphically the things of impurity. This kind of thing, these are in vogue. These are the up-to-date. These are what the open-minded people do. These are what the mature people who can deal with it do. Those who can't, you know, they're still naughty things. You know, if you're immature, these things are naughty. It's toilet talk, you know, it's, it's still dirty. When you arrive, you see, you can talk about this stuff. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, will you? Chapter 5. Let's look at a few verses here. <clears throat> this is shocking. Shocked me when I learned about it. Verse 3 in Ephesians chapter 5. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The same word there, porneia, illicit sexual activity. And he says, don't even let it be named among you. Now, the idea here isn't so much that others couldn't look in upon your group and name it as a part of your group. That's ridiculous. That's a given. The idea here is that as you talk, don't even call it by name. Illicit sexual activity shouldn't even find its way into your conversation. Be separate. Be distinct in your conversation. Look at verse 4. It gets a little more specific. And there must, must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. If you're going to talk about something, will you just give thanks? See it there? The end of 4? Give thanks. What does silly talk mean? It means fool's talk. Yeah. See, we who want to be cool and talk dirty, what we're really doing is we're talking like an idiot. We're lowering, our, we're lowering ourselves to the level of a fool and we're communicating like a fool. That's what the Bible says. 
Silly talk. Don't be a fool. Don't talk like a fool. The words coarse jesting, that's where you talk about your deceptive double meanings, your little innuendos. Don't talk that way. The Bible says don't do that. See, it says there it's not even fitting. That means we're under obligation, under duty to have no part of that stuff. It's not an option. It's not for the mature people to involve themselves in. It says, it says absolutely you're under obligation. It's not fitting. You're under duty not to be a part of that. This one really hurts. Verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers. Now, partakers. What does that mean? Partakers. It means partnership. Don't get yourself in partnership with this stuff. What kind of partnership? I don't know. Verbal partnership? Probably. Visual partnership? Economic partnership. Those are all forms of partnership. God says, I don't want you to have any kind of partnership with porneia. Now we're not even talking about doing it. We're talking about hearing it. Coarse jesting. Fool's talk. Immorality. Don't be in partnership with it. Let me ask you a question. How many TV shows do you know of that are absolutely free from fool's talk? Absolutely free from double meanings and sexual innuendos. How many TV shows do you know that have absolutely no hint or flavor of sexual immorality? The other way to ask the question is, how many shows do you watch that do? And I remind you of the command in verse 7, therefore do not be in partnership. Do not be in visual partnership. Do not be in verbal partnership and do not be in economic partnership. And don't think you have to go to the movies to support that trash. TV ratings, commercial time is billed and selled on the amount of people who watch the show. You plug into some of this trash, the rating goes up, the commercial time goes up, and the people who work that show get paid out of that. Verbal, visual, and economic Participation. What should I do, you say? Look at verse 11. You guys are talking dirty. There's a dirty TV show on. You guys want me to go to a filthy movie. People want me to listen to an obscene record. Now, see, what we get out of this definition, it, it does, the record doesn't have to sit there and sing blatant sexual things. All it has to do is be about immorality, about an immoral relationship, about immoral things. And God says, have no partnership. It's a standard, isn't it? That's tough. I studied this stuff. I like to listen to Kenny Rogers. And I studied this stuff. And I tell you, I never realized how many of his songs involve themselves in illicit sexual immorality. Can't listen to that stuff hardly ever anymore. I'm going to try to retape this stuff so I get the songs that are on him that are okay. Because I really like his music. Most of this stuff is all full of that stuff. God says no partnership. What do I do? Verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. Oh, you don't mean that. You don't want me to be a goody two-shoes, do you? You don't mean I should expose... You, mean, you, mean, you don't mean I shouldn't have my mature Christian response of just kind of silence. Just kind of 
my, my disapproval through silence, do you? You don't mean for me to expose this stuff, do you? You mean speak up? You mean call it what it is? No, you don't mean that. Yeah, I think I do. I think that's what the Bible means. It says bring it to light. Reveal it for what it is. Reprove, punish, discipline, correct. All of those thoughts locked up in what it means to expose darkness. That's your command. Expose it. Okay, so dispelling the myth. God doesn't hate sex. He loves it. He created it. He's excited about it. So should you be in marriage. We've established the only place for marriage, for sex, is in marriage. To do it outside of that is to break the will of God for your life, is to work against your calling, and is to defraud and transgress your brother. And you can bet that God will avenge his child. And we looked at the developing a moral mouth. Don't speak that stuff. Don't talk about that stuff. We need to be supportive as a community to really hold each other accountable in that regard. Those of you who are dating, who might be struggling in this area, I strongly recommend that you become accountable. And if you are not in the process of becoming accountable after hearing the word of God on this issue, I strongly recommend each of you to look at the other person and say, is this a love relationship or a lust relationship? Because a true love relationship will fight like crazy to keep this out. For those of you who are not dating, I suggest you make a real strong commitment right now to put your sights on a woman of God or a man of God who can live this stuff. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world, we live in a time, we live in a decade that is using all of its technical abilities, its wealth, to absolutely promote something which is completely contrary to your word. And yet we are the ones you've chosen to live in this era. And it's hard. It's really hard. Lord, help us to be encouraged from your words today. Help our minds to be renewed. Help us to call a spade a spade. Help us to find strength in the community of those who love you here. Thank you for the rest of this day. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Have a great day.